Welcome to the ITE Talks Transportation Podcast from the Institute of Transportation Engineers. Each month, we'll bring you conversations with thought leaders in transportation on the future of the industry. Welcome to ITE Talks Transportation. I'm your host, Bernie Wagenblast. Sam Schwartz is the president and CEO of his eponymously named transportation consulting firm in New York City. Sam spent nearly two decades with the New York City Department of Transportation, including serving as the agency's chief engineer and first deputy commissioner. Sam was the guest on our inaugural podcast, and he's coming up on his 50th anniversary as an ITE member. Sam, welcome back to ITE Talks Transportation. Thank you, Bernie. Great to be here. New York City is the first U.S. city that's going to institute congestion pricing, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. Sam, if you would, tell us a bit about the plan, such as when it's going to be implemented, how it's going to work, and how much it's going to cost, please. Part of the plan was put into effect in February of of this year, 2019, and that was a congestion charge for the four higher vehicles, meaning Uber, Lyft, Via, Get, Juno, the yellow taxis, the limousine services, anytime one of those vehicles sets tire south of 96th Street, Manhattan south of 96th Street, they will be hit with a charge. If it's Uber and Lyft, it will be a $2.75 charge. If it's a yellow taxi, it'll be $2.50. If it's a Via or some other car share service, it'll be $0.75 per passenger. So that part's in effect. It's been in effect for several months, and it looks like it's going to raise three to $400 million. The next step is to make sure that everyone that comes into the Manhattan Central Business District, which in this case is defined as Manhattan south of Central Park, also pays. So they're going into effect, and that passed in on April of 2019. That will go into effect in 2021. But what it means is if you're in a car, you're in a truck, all vehicles will have to uh, pay a price, pay a toll, as they enter the Manhattan south of 60th Street. So whether they're on a bridge, whether they're on a local street, uh, they'll have to pay a toll. The only exceptions are if they are on the peripheral highways, the West Side Highway and the FDR Drive, then they won't have to pay a toll. The tolls must raise $1 billion a year. That's in the legislation. $1 billion net. So that that could be translated into about $15 billion in capital work through bonding that $1 billion. There's roughly a 15 to 1 ratio in terms of recurring uh, revenue and the ability to bond. So we have a target that's been set, but the actual toll rates have not been set. Uh, The governor, the mayor, the legislature are going to appoint a six-person panel And they're going to have hearings and they're going to listen to people and then come up with the rates. I suspect there will be higher rates during the peak periods, lower rates off peak, maybe very low rates at midnight, maybe different rates for weekends, maybe uh, trucks being encouraged to, to travel at night versus the day. All that has not been set yet. It will be set by this panel. Now, when we're talking about congestion pricing in New York City, obviously that's a scale that far exceeds any other American city. 
And that means it's uh, potentially quite a bit of revenue that's going to be generated from this congestion pricing plan. Other than revenue, though, what are some of the other benefits that New York City is hoping to gain from congestion pricing? Well, there are, there are a couple of things. Uh, certainly, congestion has worsened. So if we look at the beginning of this decade, average speeds in midtown Manhattan, that counts the avenues and it counts stopping signals, uh, was 6.5 miles an hour. Today in 2019, it's dipped below five miles an hour, meaning we're in the four miles an hour and, there, and that's an average, meaning at times it's three or two, or as I say, it might even be moving backwards. We just can't tolerate that. So one aim of the congestion pricing towards the four higher vehicles, the Ubers and Lyfts, which are a big part of that worsening congestion. Actually, fewer cars are coming into Manhattan, but there's more vehicle miles travel, VMT, to my ITE members. There's far more VMT as a result of the Ubers and the Lyfts. So speeds have dropped dramatically. So the hope of some of the actions that have been taken on Uber and Lyft, and there's an additional action that is about to take place by the city council to reduce the amount of time that Uber and Lyft and other four hire vehicles can be empty in midtown Manhattan. Those are aimed at reducing VMT, which would reduce VHT, vehicle hours of travel, which will increase speeds. The same thing for vehicle entries, which have their greatest impact in the morning and in the afternoon at the river crossings and at some of the north-south avenues. So the hope is travel speeds will jump by 15%, maybe 20% once congestion pricing goes into effect. And that, that's been the history in London and Stockholm and other places. A nice boost in speeds. And then there's the other effect of spending more money on transit. Transit becomes more attractive. Driving becomes less attractive. Fewer people will be taking motor vehicles, including the Ubers, Lyfts, and uh, general cars. And so that should have a good effect on congestion. So congestion relief is a leading part of it, but it's also the revenue that will be collected from transit. And the way the legislation was passed, a revenue target as opposed to a speed target has been set. When you talk about that revenue that's going to be raised, is it dedicated to transit or is it going into a general fund and hopefully some of the money will be sent to transit? How is that going to work out? It's always the trickiest part as to where the money will go. It's going into a separate fund, and that fund is supposedly a lockbox. And once the money is then dedicated to paying off bonds that are issued against it, there's really no legal way for a governor or someone else to raid that money. So that's that's really an important feature because we've seen that in the past. Money gets dedicated to transit and Somebody uses the money for something else. The bondholder covenants are usually quite severe that you can't use the money for anything else and you must use it for what is it's intended to do. And we're hoping that that protects the revenue. We're also hoping that there's a maintenance of effort part of this in which the state and the city cannot reduce its contributions to the MTA just because the MTA is getting additional funds. There are lots of people watching this. There are plenty of skeptics out there. And, you know, frankly, with my now almost 50 years of experience in transportation, actually more if you count my cab driving days, 
I would be wary too, and I am wary, and I'm going to be one of those watchdogs making sure this gets spent wisely. We talked about how this is going to hopefully encourage people who drive passenger vehicles or use ride-sharing vehicles, taxis, etc., to maybe switch to public transportation. But that's not an option when it comes to deliveries that have to be made by truck. Won't the congestion pricing plan increase the cost of everything that's delivered by truck into Manhattan? Well, we're hoping it actually has a different effect. First of all, there is a, a big push for overnight deliveries for those kinds of businesses that can do it. The mom stores, they just can't do it. They don't have enough staff to staff it late at night. But what we're hoping is that there will be some change in patterns, that there will be higher fees for trucks during the peak hours, lower fees at other times to encourage trucks to go and travel at the lower volume times, but also that if the speeds go up by 15%, uh, then those trucks can make perhaps an extra delivery a day and the cost of deliveries goes down. So it's not clear that this will simply increase uh, the cost of deliveries. Remember, what we're talking about is a $25 charge, perhaps. Uh, you know, We don't have the numbers, as I said, but order of magnitude, $25 for the average truck coming in, and that's $25 spread over quite a few deliveries or services. Some of those will be passed on, and some of, some of those, uh, there will be benefits on additional deliveries or additional work that could be made due to the higher speeds. Following you for a number of years, I know this has been an issue that you've been involved with uh, over many years, and New York City has talked about implementing congestion pricing over many years, but... For one reason or another, they were never able to overcome the various obstacles and opposition that came up. What's different this time? Why do you think it was successful in getting passed this time around? A number of things. One, it truly was a grassroots effort to keep congestion pricing alive. Uh, there was a movement called Move New York. Uh, I was uh, very active in, in that movement. Uh, there are three of us that kept this alive when it really was was dead. Alex Matheson. Charles Kamenoff and myself. And uh, two years ago, on this date, August 14th, we're speaking, the governor suddenly announced support for the plan. And I remember the date quite well. My granddaughter was born on this date. <laughs> and what, what changed? A, a grassroots effort has a way of mobilizing far more people in a way than government has. We spent years, literally almost a decade before that, going around to mainly the opponents to congestion pricing, listening to them and amending a plan that would be more and more acceptable to them. There was another grassroots effort called the Riders Alliance, uh, led by somebody named John Raskin, who did a spectacular job on making transit an issue every single day in the media. And we did have a crisis. We had a crisis both below ground and above ground, below ground. Subway on-time performance dropped from the beginning of the decade near 90% to about 63% in our subway services. And speeds dropped, as I said earlier, from 6.5 miles an hour to 4.7 miles an hour. So you did have the crisis. You had the grassroots efforts. You had a plan kept alive and all of the media we visited as Move New York, all of the media in New York, whether it was conservative or left-wing media, from Fox to the New York Times, came out in support of the congestion pricing plan. 
And so you had a stage in which the governor could walk on that stage, know that there was support, know there was a crisis, and come out in support of it. So two years ago, the governor comes out in support of it. Literally days before that, we were closing shop. We had almost no support, any of the funding. And by the way, I did all this pro bono, but my partners in this relied on grants. The grants all dried up. But once the governor announced, uh, the saying is success has a thousand mothers and fathers and failure is an orphan. We were orphans (laughs) until August 14th, 2017. Governor comes on board. All of a sudden, the real estate interest comes on board. A number of businesses come on board. Some very well-to-do people come on board. A lot of people were looking for a signal from the governor. A lot of elected officials suddenly wanted to sponsor the bill. People would stop me in the street saying, I want to sponsor that bill. And we were popular once again. (laughs) We were the least popular people for a long time. Then we became popular. And now we're not so popular because now people realize it's setting in and people are complaining about it. But we really did have a crisis. The one other element that was so important here was Andy Byford. Came to us from Toronto or, or originally from London. For the first time, the MTA put together such a cogent plan to catch up. The MTA fell far behind. Early in in the century, there was a deferment of a lot of maintenance. It took five or ten years for that to hit and result in terrible, terrible service. So a previous governor made an awful decision. Previous MTA made a terrible decision to defer maintenance because that's the easiest thing to do to balance a budget. But wow, does it increase costs. Andy Byford put together a plan called Fast Forward. So here you had a grassroots effort. You had all of the media in support. You had the social media component that John Raskin and the Writers Alliance put together, and you had a plan. And so the screaming of the media, the screaming of the public, the reality of a crisis below and above ground resulted in people finally saying, you've got to do something. It was like a a scene out of Network, the film, where the, the fellow opens the window and yells, uh, I'm mad as hell and I can't take it anymore. This time around, it was even drivers saying, I'm mad as hell and I can't take it anymore. It kind of reminds me going back to the 1980s when I was working for New York City DOT and first came to know you, and you were very involved with rebuilding a lot of the East River bridges in particular. They got a, a lot of attention and there again was a lot of deferred maintenance that was going on with those crossings. And it got to the point where there were lane closings and other problems that were coming up. So do you think that uh, some of your experience when you were with New York City DOT and and having to push the deferred maintenance and, and try to catch up on that with the East River crossings played a role a bit in terms of how you approached congestion pricing? Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I was and And Bernie, we were there at the same time. I inherited the bridges of New York. My background was in traffic engineering, but after a scandal in 1986 that affected all the leadership of the DOT except for me, I was named the chief engineer. And one of the things that I learned about is besides stealing money, uh, the secondary scandal was not paying attention to our bridges, our infrastructure. And so during the decade of the 1980s, people forget that 15 people died in bridge collapses 
in the area. It started with cables snapping on the Brooklyn Bridge, killing a Japanese tourist. In 1981, 1983, the Mianus Bridge collapses. Three people die on the New York State Thruway. In 1987, 10 people die when the Schoharie Bridge collapses. And then a, an elevated portion of the FDI Drive in 1989 collapses, killing one. In addition, the West Side Highway a few years earlier in the 70s collapses, falls to the ground. And there were some 20 bridges that I had to close all or parts of, including the entire Williamsburg Bridge. An interesting side note, Donald Trump, who I knew quite well, a, a real estate developer in New York City uh, at the time, uh, walked across the bridge, met me mid-span, and always was very respectful to me, and we got along quite well. He said, I can get this bridge open in four months. Well, I put the dare to my bridge workers, and I said, if Trump could do it in four months, I want you to beat Trump. And they got it open in three and a half months, which was a headline. So no politics here, just to let you know, <laughs> government workers really can do fantastic work when, when challenged and given the freedom to, to do it. They were spectacular. But that's how bad it was. So when I went forward and I started to talk about our transit system, I would use the examples of failing infrastructure and showing how much more costly it was to save a penny here and then pay 10 times more than that in future years and also risk people's lives. And that's what we were doing with our transit system. We were repeating those mistakes. And the costs just grow exponentially. If you paint it, if you clean it, if you maintain it, if you repair it, the costs are order of magnitude a tenth and sometimes even more less doing it that way. One-tenth the cost I found generally in bridges was the ratio. Defer it, you'll pay 10 times as much. Wow. We noted in the opening that New York City is the first U.S. city to have congestion pricing, but it's not the first in the world. As you mentioned, London has done it, uh, Stockholm, Singapore, some other places where congestion pricing has been in place. A lot of folks never thought it would come to the U.S., but do you think what you're doing in New York is going to make it easier for other U.S. cities to implement their own congestion pricing plans? Absolutely. We are being monitored by just about every large city in the United States, and I've been getting calls from uh, Seattle and San Francisco and Los Angeles and Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, Boston, and others. So congestion in the U.S. has only gotten worse. With the increase in both Uber and Lyft and micro deliveries, that the combination of those and, of course, increased population, lower gas prices has resulted in the worst congestion cities have seen perhaps since last well into last century and maybe ever. New York City speeds are below they were in 1915. And for the last 50 years, I've been monitoring New York City speeds, so I have pretty good records on it. I think the same is being repeated in, uh, in Boston and in Denver and in, in Los Angeles and other places. So, yes, this is a way of dealing with congestion. I think many of those places are looking at it for congestion relief, and some are also looking at it for transit improvement. New York does it, implements it in 2021. I am certain other cities will follow during the 2020s. We talk about other cities. Obviously, 
Manhattan is the epicenter of congestion in New York City. But those who are familiar with New York City know that some of the other boroughs have also seen their shares of congestion as more and more housing has has developed. And again, some of the same issues that we've seen in Manhattan uh, go out into the other boroughs. Do you see congestion pricing coming to other parts of the city at some point? Well, I'm going to stay away from that, Bernie, because <laughs> I will hear from from a lot of the elected officials that I finally was able to convince in Brooklyn and Queens and, and other places. And if they hear Sam Schwartz is advocating congestion pricing in Brooklyn, uh, I'll be skewered. I've been skewered plenty of times. <laughs> I don't need one more. Well, that does raise an interesting issue, though. You talk about some of the uh, the politicians in, in Queens and Brooklyn and even in places outside of New York City, such as Nassau County or in New Jersey, another state, that they had issues with congestion pricing, feeling it that, that it wasn't fair to their constituents. How did you address that? How was that answered? If you ask somebody, would you like to pay more for what you're doing now? It's pretty <laughs> rare that you'll you'll get a positive on that. So so it's a natural reaction by everybody. But people act as if this has never happened before. Well, the entire borough of Staten Island, you cannot get into the borough of Staten Island in a motor vehicle without paying a toll. So Staten Island has had congestion pricing for as many years as has been bridges, the last one, 1964, uh, when the Verrazano opened. So it's not unusual. Everyone in a motor vehicle that comes from New Jersey, has to pay to cross the Hudson River coming into New York City. Twelve fifty during the peak hour, ten fifty off peak. Whether they're going to Staten Island, which I think it's ridiculous that Staten Island has to pay so much, or they're going into Midtown Manhattan via the Lincoln and Holland tunnels or the George Washington Bridge. So we've had it in New York City for many, many people. Now we're going to be fair about it. Everybody that comes into the busiest part of New York City, the Central Business District, Manhattan South of Central Park, will have to pay. So this isn't new. We have 15 toll crossings in New York City, not to mention all the other toll facilities, such as the Garden State Parkway and the New Jersey Turnpike that that surround New York City. So people have been paying tolls since the first tolls were levied at the Brooklyn Bridge in 1883. Sam, thanks so much for being our guest on ITE Talks Transportation. I'm delighted, and I hope we don't have to wait another three years to talk.